welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. My name is Sarah Leffley and I'm thrilled to be starting a new year with Pastor Rod Bailey on the Deeper podcast. How are you today, Rod? Good. I'm rested. I'm back. I'm ready to go for the new year. That is excellent news. I feel a bit odd calling it a new year. Um, as a teacher, it's not strange because I am only two weeks in, mm. but we are probably more like six or seven weeks into the, That's into right. the new year. Yeah, like the late New Year's resolutions are performing <laughs> them now, right? right? These a, are the real ones after yeah. you've given up on the ones that are a little bit too ambitious. Oh, look, I, I'm with you this time around because we had a week's break from Christmas to New Year, which we often do, but then I had another week's break right at the end of January. Oh, that so sounds it lovely. feels like I'm just starting now. Perfect. Well, on that note then, is there something that you are really excited about for this new year? Absolutely. The church plant. Um, it's going to be a big year of change for our family, um, but we're really excited about moving down to Calderwood at some point, uh, hopefully towards the end of this first half of the year, and then uh, the church plant kicking off in the second half of the year. And we'll actually be announcing this Sunday, the next couple of Sundays, that we're going to have a couple of info sessions oh, fantastic. Uh, regarding the church plant for anyone that is interested to be part of it or just to hear about it and pray for us. Um, so they'll be happening on February 24 and March 10. So there'll be a Saturday morning one and a Sunday Arvo one um, and whatever suits people. Hopefully one of those will work. That sounds great. Perfect plug. And I was just telling you how fun I find a church meeting. So you're one of the few, but that's great. We'll uh, we'll invite you to all our meetings. I might come to both, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Every time you preach, though, I do grieve a little. Um, It reassures me that you're the right man for the job, but I do grieve a little, especially this week. I um, sent Ben to the evening service trying to come up with more questions and the best he came up with is um, what is Peter's mother-in-law's name <laughs> you couldn't <laughs> yeah. think of anything else because you were just so clear so there thank you, you. Well, <laughs> I haven't got an answer to that one so there you go <laughs> well that's the end of this podcast <laughs> no we'll dig in we did come up with something so hopefully we'll learn a lot today I'm sure yeah all right um this is I guess an opportunity for a bit of a summary but before we went to church um I remembered very late that I was on Bible reading. And Ben said, what are you reading? And I told him, oh, you know, it's that passage with the three consecutive healings. It's got the leper and the um, centurion's servant and Peter, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But after your sermon, I thought, that was a terrible, that wasn't a right description of what that passage is about. What is the heart of this passage? Yeah, well, I mean, the takeaway pass, uh, message is that, you know, in response to Jesus' authority, um, as demonstrated by these powerful miracles, um, we should respond with submission, faith, and service. Um, that was kind of my points from each of those uh, miracles. Um, I, I think the overall one really is a, a response of submission to Christ's lordship. Um, I think that's the strongest of those three, and that really gives expression to the faith and service that follows. Um, yeah, and I think that's a challenge to us, obviously, um, in lots of different ways, which we'll, we'll probably dig into in subsequent questions. But I think... Um, yeah, it's easy to read lots of these kind of passages in the Gospels and think, oh, it's just Jesus doing cool stuff or whatever, like he's yeah. performing these miracles. But, yeah, thinking about, well, what's going on? Why does Matthew bother to record this or any of the Gospel writers? What is he trying to convey? And that's always the harder thing, I think, in these narrative sections. Well, on that note of completely missing the point, I also um, have always thought about this incidence of Jesus healing the leper as just being a real sign of Jesus' love and compassion. Mm. But there seemed to be a lot more to it when you were talking about that, in, mm. you know, him displaying his authority and after the Sermon on the Mount expressing mm. that he has fulfilled mm. the law. Yeah. Um, is reading compassion in that 
situation completely off the mark or is is there a place for that as well? Yeah, not at all. I think both are true and I don't know if you would call it a bias, but I think we're drawn naturally um, as a reader to just considering the compassion of Jesus, the way he deals with people, which is right. And it's uh, it's expression of God's character. Like we get many times, you know, this sort of summary description of God's character in the Old Testament. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And Jesus, of course, exemplifies that as the eternal son. And so we see his compassion pouring out. And, you know, there's places where he says he had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like this is a a notable theme Mm. in the Gospels. Um, Having said all of that, yeah, I think uh, we tend to think in that direction. Um, I think we're especially aware because life was hard, obviously, in the first century and medical situations or ailments, you know, they could stunt a person's entire life because there was little medical help. And so I think we're just naturally drawn in that direction in our thinking. So the result is that we're prone to missing uh, the bigger picture of Christ's authority and the fact that the miracles are pointing uh, to the identity of Jesus as the, the chosen one, the Messiah. And so we really need to grasp that the miracles not only point to his compassionate character, they do demonstrate that, but it's more about his divinity, you know, that he is um, displaying through his words, as I was mentioning the intro to the sermon, uh, such as in the Sermon on the Mount, but also through his actions or his deeds, that he is the one. Yeah. Then should we, knowing this truth about Jesus' divinity and that being the real purpose of the miracle, is it too much of a stretch for us to glean any information about how we should um, take the message of the gospel to the downtrodden and the outcast? Yeah, um, no, I, I think it's, you know, at times it's a secondary application, perhaps mm. in a section, and I would say it is in this particular one. Uh, but Christ's example is always powerful, and it's something that we can always copy or or seek to imitate. And so, um, and that is a theme in the New Testament uh, as well. Obviously, he asked his disciples to copy his um, humility and love when he washes their feet and says, you know, go and do likewise for each other. Uh, there are ex- other examples where he points to them to observe what he's doing and to imitate it. So we need to see that that's, that's a legitimate um, application always in that broader sense. Um, we certainly need to grow in our compassion for the needy and the downtrodden in a world that um, yeah it tends to push past them so often these days, especially in a Western nation like Australia where – there's wonderfully, uh, you know, a safety net and lots of government support and so on. And we can just think, oh, well, everyone in the end is kind of catered for. And so I don't need to worry about those that are finding it hard. And so there can be then a hardness to our heart mm-hmm. about such things. Um, and you'll hear that, you know, and so um, and that's engendered sometimes by the politics in Western countries where, oh, you know, these people are just, um, you know, leaning on the system and, you know, getting money from Centrelink or however we might phrase it, um, which can be true. Obviously, there can be corruption in any system, but that also brings with it, uh, you know, a judgmental attitude towards those who are often in real need and really need that help. And indeed, Christians should be looking to provide it and not think that the secular government somehow does what the Christian church always did and probably until about a century ago. So I think there's something for us always to think on this area. Um, The problem, I think, um, is that, as Jesus mentioned, you'll always have the poor with you. Mm. Um, And so I guess there's two 
um, as mo- in most things, and we talk about this a lot in the podcast, there are two extremes and you don't want to fall into one or the other. One is to be uh, have no thought or care or concern or compassion uh, for those in need. The other is to see that is as the sum total of Christian focus. It almost becomes the gospel. And so people have talked about for the last few decades that kind of theology. We talk about the social gospel mm. where the gospel just becomes helping people, not preaching salvation in Jesus almost. Um, that's an equal and opposite error, obviously, because um, as Jesus says, we will always have the poor. That doesn't mean for a moment that we don't give energy to seeking to help the needs in this world. Um, but at the same time, if we don't tell them the message of salvation, um, then we're being very short-sighted. We're thinking that this world is all that there is yeah. and that their solution is better food or better education or whatever right now. Now, that can always be helpful for people, but if they never hear about Jesus and don't have an eternal hope... They're still in the same state they were before. They're still in the same state. I can make somebody better fed mm. and then still go to hell. And so I, I need to have both. So I don't want to um, yeah, miss that either meeting that greater spiritual need. Um, But at the same time, um, if we were to try and think in terms of, well, modern Western terms, again, it it seems kind of um, absent because we often don't see people on the street. Um, Yeah, is there an equivalent to a leper in this world? I don't know that there is. Well, that's the thing. Like, I think in Australia we see very little. Maybe when you go into Sydney, you know, you see a few people that are homeless living on the street, occasionally in Wollongong, but there's not a lot, right? Mm. Whereas you go to other Western countries like America, LA, San Francisco, the West Coast is full of people lying under bridges Mm. um, and so forth. So in terms of modern Western equivalence to lepers, I think, you know, if we think in terms of medical terms or a disease, I think in the 1980s and maybe into the 1990s, it was those with HIV. Oh, yeah. There was a real distance. There was a fear, right, just as there is with leprosy. Even still today in parts of the world, there's a great fear of leprosy. Um, But there was this great fear in Mm. Western countries suddenly of HIV and they were the untouchables. And, you know, anyone that was dealing with them in the medical world were sort of heroes to sort of wade into that. And I guess we've had a more recent version of that with COVID. Um, You know, we're so relaxed about it now. But when it first happened and we're seeing these crazy numbers in Europe, especially in Italy and Spain, I I can remember, you know, and people wearing the full mask and that and like, how would they even go into that ward and, you know, help those people? Uh, that's amazing kind of thing. So there's, I guess we get perhaps some medical scenarios where it seems extreme and the average person wouldn't want to enter. Um, and But I think if you think more broadly than that, if we step out of the medical realm, and what are the equivalent of those that we struggle to interact with um, that are kind of no-go zone for another reason? Um, If you think more broadly socially, it could be young Muslim extremists in some countries, like people don't want to engage with that group of people, Um, or ultra-right nationalists, Mm. you know, wearing balaclavas and running around with weapons. um, That sends fear into people and it was like, oh, no, we're not going to speak in that space. They suddenly become people that you wouldn't take the gospel to because that's just too hard or too dangerous. you know, it could be perhaps biking gangs in Australia, like they're yeah. basically criminal organisations and people are scared of interacting with them and, you know, the police have their SWAT team if they're even going to enter their property. And so I think there – it depends how broadly you think of this topic, but I think there are, there are groups of people and if in our mind – 
we could never engage with them, then I think they've become like a modern-day yeah. leper to us. Are they any less of need of hearing the gospel of Jesus? No. Uh, why wouldn't I engage with them? Um, we see it as a specialist thing maybe that somebody else can do, but I'm not going to touch. Yeah. Um, so I think we do have these categories, and I, so I think we've got to be careful where fear enters um, or the person's lifestyle perhaps repels us so much that we can't entertain speaking to them. Mm. Um, Jesus would be right in there. I mean, he dealt with the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Like we think in those more broad social terms, those who others would not engage with, he was the first to sit down with them. Yeah, I think also it um, speaks to my sometimes lack of faith in the power of the word because I think sometimes people are just too far off mm. to be brought into the kingdom. But far off is far off and Jesus can traverse any distance. Yeah. Yeah, but I definitely do guiltily think that way sometimes. My next question is about Jesus' motivation. He would have known, you even said yourself, that he would have known that this man was going to disobey the instruction to keep quiet about the healing, and yet he heals him anyway at a cost to his ministry. Why would he do that? Yeah, uh, he he definitely knew what was going to happen, and so clearly he didn't heal him on the basis of uh, his obedience or Mm. what was going to unfold. Um, Jesus has perfect knowledge. Um, I think... I was mentioning on Sunday the parallel passages really help us sometimes because uh, whether in Matthew's Gospel or Mark or Luke, those three that are referred to as the synoptics often have the same passages or parts thereof, and there'll be little you know snippets of difference between them which help us get a bigger picture. Um, for example, even in the case of the centurion, um, the parallel accounts are quite different about him. He doesn't come himself he sends a servant Uh and then you know and so there are these variations that then make us like how did that happen but it it just adds a picture in um i think it's luke's account of the centurion um the jews are actually backing jesus interest in him because he paid to have a synagogue built Uh and he was a god-fearer and so there's already this established sort of connection which you know just broadens the picture of who this centurion is um, so I guess um, on this question of why Jesus would do it, knowing the the way it was going to hamper his ministry going forward, I think Mark is the best in this. So in Mark chapter 1, in the parallel account of this, um, Jesus withdraws to a solitary place after doing a few miracles, but it's before the healing of the leper in Mark's okay. version of it. Uh, and so um, when it comes to the leper, he's already withdrawn because of crowds, um, he then heals the leper. The leper goes and tells everyone there are more crowds <laughs> again. And it actually, it's a thing that Mark is sort of tracking and it escalates further in chapter three of Mark where he says, and then there was this other miracle and now it was even worse, you know. And and so this is a, just this growing trend or problem for Jesus. Um, and so he says in Mark one, well, let's go somewhere else so that I can preach there also. Um, but it's, I think the whole point of this, why does Jesus do it knowing this will happen? It's all about his identity. It's all about fulfillment of scripture again. Mm-hmm. So um, remember uh, later, we're going to look at this in a few weeks, in Matthew chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus. By this point, John is in jail and he sends his disciples to Jesus, his own cousin, and says, are you the one after having prepared the way for him? So obviously... Doubts are springing to mind. Um, 
And what is Jesus' answer to him? And so he says to the disciples, well, go back and tell them, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the oh, deaf wow. hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And so these things are considered you know, a fulfillment of scriptures from Isaiah and elsewhere. This is what the Messiah is to do. Here is evidence of mm. who I am. So again, it goes back to what are the miracles for? Well, yes, it expresses Jesus' compassion, but it's identifying him as the Messiah. Yes. And Jesus will point to them as proof that he is the one. It's actually a really beautiful picture of um, his divinity and humanity together, like that want for rest and reprieve from a crowd, but also the need to fulfill scripture and the fact that he can, his authority to yes. heal leprosy. What a beautiful marriage of both things at once. That's exactly. really nice. Um, in all of these accounts, I was struck by the fact that Jesus does actually follow through with the healing. You know, two of them ask, but according to his will, you know, if you will it, you can heal. And the other person doesn't even have to ask at all. Are there accounts where people ask, but the answer is no? Yes, it's a really good question. And um, it's there's not specific examples, I don't think, given in Scripture of individuals that are rejected. Mm -hmm. But... There is a broader um, theme of not doing miracles in certain areas or not doing very much, which Scripture notes because it's so noteworthy yeah. because of what we're talking about. So later in Matthew 11 again uh, from verse 24 onwards, he has this little section of woes on the unrepentant towns. And he says, look, if uh, speaking of Chorazin and Capernaum and whatever, the miracles that have been performed in your town had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would still exist, this uh -huh. kind of thing. Like this should have led to a response from you and the response he was looking for was repentance. That's really interesting. Um, similarly, in Mark 6, um, there's this passage where um, he goes back to Nazareth, right, his hometown, and the locals of Nazareth um, see him. Um, they had grown up knowing him. And there's that reaction, you know, a prophet without honor because they say, oh, don't we know him? We know his mm. brothers and sisters. Ah, oh, he's just the carpenter's son. Um, and it says in verse 5 of Mark 6, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. Um, and then there's a similar um, passage where, again, it says, um, because the people lacked faith, mm. he did not heal in this town and you think oh so i don't think it's saying jesus was unable to that sort of somehow put a barrier and yeah. he couldn't express his ultimate power but that he chose not to because of the reaction and response of the people so i think there is a sense in which jesus doesn't just heal everywhere he goes um there's something about uh, the faith that's expressed by the people that come, which is why I don't think we see an individual rejected, as far as I know, in, this, in the Gospels, because they're already expressing faith to have Approached. found Jesus out yeah. and fall down before him. There's an immediate mm. trust, isn't there? They wouldn't have gone to such trouble. Some of them travel miles just to get to him. Yeah. Yeah. So what about in real life experience? I mean, and this obviously is real life, but a long time ago, modern day life experience, I think we do ask things of Jesus, especially healing, and mm. sometimes the answer is no. How do we process that? Yes. Well, look, to, it relates to that. Um, one added um, aspect of him being asked to do healing 
um, there is one group that he says no to, and that's the religious leaders. Oh, yeah. And it's because of their motivation, mm. right? So there's that sign of Jonah passage, which is in Matthew 12. We're going to cover that this term as well. Um, and he comes back to that again in Matthew 16 with another group of them. But they're teachers of the law, and they're asking for a sign. They really mean a miracle so that they might believe that he is the Messiah. Of course, the irony is he's been doing that for three or four <laughs> chapters, and some of them were present. Just had your chance. Yeah, like you've seen it 20 <laughs> times. What are you talking about? But because their motive is, we don't believe you're the Christ, you still haven't proven it, even though mm. you've done all of these things. So show us something even more impressive now, and maybe we'll believe you. Yeah. Jesus is like, I'm not... <laughs> giving you a miracle on that basis. The only miracle, Not a magician. You, yeah. The miracle you'll see is my death and resurrection. That's the sign of Jonah, mm. um, which, of course, they don't understand any of that at this point. But, um, yeah, in saying that, I, I guess what I'm answering there is that our motivation needs to be right to start with. Um, they clearly did not have a motivation of um, desperately wanting even a healing for themselves, they're just looking for a sign uh, of any sort. Um, so there's a there's a way in which we can be approaching God with just a selfishness or um, or approve yourself to me. Like you hear people say, "Look, if you get me out of this fix, or you were to heal my um, loved one who has ca- cancer, then I, you know I'll, I'll consider putting my faith in you, God." Mm-hmm. You know, is that a right approach in asking for a healing? Um, I think Scripture would say no. But maybe that's the response of a non-believer who doesn't understand how to think through these things. Uh, maybe it's just a natural expression of a person's pain. They're just crying out. Yeah. But there, there's there's something in that expression which is wrong, obviously, and I don't think we see God responding in those kind of scenarios. I think even more than that, um, I think we've got to um, think about um, – yeah, there's there's a number of things in the New Testament that talk about um, persistence in prayer, uh, right? So Jesus says, um, Luke 11, like following his teaching on the Lord's Prayer, you need to pray persistently. He said, and he gives the analogy of the guy knocking on your door at midnight, and because he keeps knocking, you'll get up and answer yeah. him and help him um, because of his persistence. But if he just knocked once, you just stay in bed and ignore him. And so... Um, yeah, I think there's an aspect at times where we're very shallow or lacking persistence in our prayers. Um, and so we pray once, it doesn't happen, and we say, oh, God let me down, he didn't answer my prayer. Does he have to do it instantly? Like, God's timing is always perfect. Have you stopped praying about that? Um, now, that doesn't put it on us that, oh, well, the most persistent person wins, and if you pray for five years, then God will give you something. But there's... If something is really on our heart, if it's really a worthy prayer, then we will persist at it and mm. God will hear that heart that we have. Um, maybe sometimes we just move on because it's um, it's just a thing in the moment and we've forgotten a week later that we even prayed for it. Um, I think there's, there's something amiss in that. Um, I think at the end of James 2, in James chapter 5, he talks about... Um, you know, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And he points to Elijah who prayed and didn't rain for two years. Um, what is he saying by that? If um, if we're not a righteous person, that somehow our prayers won't be heeded? Um, 
1 Peter 3, it says that husbands should treat their wives with honour and love or else their prayers will be impeded. So it seems like our sinfulness or our responses at times can actually affect uh, our prayer life or God's responsiveness to us. And I think that's that makes sense to us, that if we're seeking to obey the Lord, um, then... It's not that he doesn't hear, but he does, you know, the response is seeking to draw us into a closer walk with him and real faith rather than a, a selfishness, a lack of persistence, um, prayers that are not coming from somebody that's seeking to live for God. Um, I, I think we're just given little snippets here and there in the New Testament that are worth dwelling on a lot further, and that's probably a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. It's a really big question, and I think I'm surprised by your answer because I think it puts more responsibility on me than I was willing to accept. Um, yeah, I, I think I was expecting your answer to be, well, we don't know, you know, God's timing is God's timing, God's plan is God's plan. I think those things are still true, mm. but um, it is good to be reminded that there is actually, um, you know, something that we can do in our own heart um, mm. to show a genuine faith. Mm. Um so it's a helpful reminder, is what I'm saying, I think. Yeah, but a lot for me to think about this afternoon anyway. Are there, speaking of parallel accounts, are there parallel accounts telling us about the Jewish response after Jesus makes these really wild remarks um, about people being kicked out of the kingdom? Um, yeah, that in Mark 1 and Luke 7, which are the parallels, they don't actually have verses 11 and 12 oh. with that little statement, which is a shame, isn't it? No, we don't, that's the best bit. <laughs> yeah, we don't get any reaction to that as a result. There's nothing further information because there's no original information. But Jesus does return to this theme several times uh, across the Gospels. Mm. But in Matthew's Gospel, he returns to it in chapters 21 and 22. So um, uh, in those points, um, there's the example... Um, well, you know, by the end of Matthew 12, the Jewish leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. <laughs> so things ramp up from there. By the time he gets to Matthew 21 and he tells the parable of the tenants, uh, things are at boiling point, like they're, they're getting close to wanting to crucify him. And he says in Matthew 21 in the parable of the tenants, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. <laughs> so... And it says at the end of that parable, the religious leaders saw Jesus as speaking against them. Mm. Um, but he speaks of a people. I think he's speaking of them, yes, but more broadly of the Jewish people who will reject Jesus as the Messiah and that the kingdom is being taken away from those that reject him and given to a people that will produce fruit. Who are these people? Mm. We presume those outside the Jewish uh, nation, Gentiles. So again, it's kind of a, an illusion. He doesn't go really deeply with it there in chapter 21. But then in chapter tw 22, he tells the parable of the wedding banquet and the guy that doesn't have the right clothes and is thrown outside. Same phrase at the end, weeping and gnashing of teeth in darkness. Um, and he says there, um, the king in this picture, which is a picture of God in this um, parable, those I invited didn't deserve to come. So go and invite anyone you find. And so, again, it's, it's not as um, direct, perhaps, no. Jew-Gentile language, but there's strong inferences in those two parables 
that you know those that um, don't see Jesus and identify him as the Christ are going to miss out on the kingdom. And surprisingly, people that no one expected, i.e. Gentiles in the Jews' mind, but in these parables, people that are in the streets, that are nobodies, the lame are brought in, are the ones that will be there. Yeah. It's powerful. It is powerful. And it's um, interesting that they get um, so personally offended that he's speaking directly to them um, because it speaks to guilt, doesn't it? (laughs) They know they're not producing fruit if they're feeling defensive, I think. Yep, yep. Now, this last question is definitely going to tie back to the um, question about the answer of no to what mm. we ask for. I guess it's going to speak into our motivation. Mm. Um, how do we guard ourselves against treating Jesus like a genie, asking for things on our own terms mm. rather than asking for things with the purpose of wanting his glory, his eternal glory to be achieved? Yeah. Yes. Well, starting with the motive again, uh, like probably the most powerful verse in the New Testament, this is James 4 verse 3, when he says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's like, whew, okay, <laughs> I need to think about what it is that I'm praying. So we always need to check our motives and pray uh, for the things that God calls us to pray for. And, of course, the way we do this is to model it on biblical prayers. We all know the Lord's Prayer, but then there are lots of prayers by Paul in the New Testament which we can take up and use. Then we're praying for things that we know God calls us to pray. We're praying Scripture back to him. Now, that doesn't mean I can't pray for my exam or you know the health mm. issue in my family, which isn't mentioned by Paul in his prayer. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, but if I'm only praying my list of wants or things that I'm facing, and I'm never praying these bigger prayers, I would call them, from Paul, which are about spiritual growth of people. I need to be praying that for myself, for other believers. I need to take up Paul's prayers. Don Carson wrote a great book on this back in 92 called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, and he just walks through Paul's prayers in the New Testament. I think it's called Praying with Paul these days. Um, But that is a great book, and it just unpacks that. And... um, There's a great place to go because, Mm. um, for example, you can go to um, Colossians 1 and Paul prays that believers will be filled with the knowledge of God's will by the help of the Spirit so that they may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. What a prayer. Like, you know, I need to be praying that for myself. I need to be praying that even for a missionary who's asking Mm. for prayer for some crisis they're facing. By all means, pray for the crisis, but pray that they will grow in their knowledge and bear fruit for the Lord in the way that Paul prays. Um, speaking of all of this, straight after Easter, we're going to do a three-week series on prayer. Oh, and perfect. we're going to look at this very issue. <laughs> so there's our segue to what's coming soon. That's excellent and a wonderful way to finish. Um, I've got a few things to think about, a lot to pray about, and some motivations to check. Thanks so much for listening and join us again next week. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, wollongongbaptist.org.